Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro. With me is Ricky Allpike, and surprise, surprise, we have Sheila with us today. How are you, Sheila? Ta-da! Here I am. Uh, it's it, this is my debut. Yeah, Outside well, boob. look, let's just let's just be clear. AJ hasn't been like assassinated or fired. <laughs> no, no, I'm just standing in. You're I'm standing just standing in. in. So Sheila's standing in. So, you know, that'd be pretty cold though. If we were just like. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Just, like just did we disband and then we reform with Sheila. Yeah. Oh my well, god. I say this, you, did it. you guys would yeah. have to be desperate. This is this is desperate times. Well, it is desperate to have times. me on the air. <laughs> it, no, it is desperate uh because we reviewed uh, as part of our spooktacular for the next few Ow! weeks. <laughs> so good. Uh right, we did Friday the 13th and Friday the 13th part deuce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for fuck's sake, honestly, so this good- was really heavy going, guys. It took me two and a half days to get through them. I just had to keep walking away, resetting myself and coming back and just going, oh, <sighs> no, but to right. be fair, this doesn't make sense because, like, where do you get off? I've You've watched Sharknado and stuff like that. Yeah, and Frightmare. And World of Warcraft. And World of Warcraft <laughs> and Driller Killer and Tomb Raider 2. Yeah, so, but, so what was, why was this such a big this deal? This is I've caviar seen, compared to that. Then you watch garbage. Were, these were fucking terrible. They were terrible. Anyway, get into it. Hello? Who's that? Oh, hi. What are you doing out in this mess? One.
Friday, the 13th. Okay, all right. Well, we need to start with a, uh, uh, a synopsis. Ricky. Okay, here it is. Friday the 13th, part one. In 1958, at Camp Crystal Lake, counsellors Barry Jackson and Claudette Hayes sneak inside a storage cabin to have sex, where an unseen assailant murders them. 21 years later, camp counsellor Annie Phillips is driven halfway to the reopened Camp Crystal Lake by Enos, a truck driver, despite warnings from the town's local crazy named Ralph. While driving, Enos warns Annie uh, about the camp's troubled past, beginning when a young boy drowned in Crystal Lake in 1957. After being dropped off, she hitches another ride from an unseen person who chases her into the woods and slashes her throat. At the camp, counsellors Ned, Jack, Bill, Marcy, Brenda and Alice, along with owner Steve Christie, refurbish the cabins and facilities. As a thunderstorm approaches, Steve leaves the campground to stock supplies. After Jack and Marcy get hot and heavy on the bottom bunk, unaware that Ned, our killer's first victim, is dead on the top bunk, the camp counsellors start being picked off one by one. Worried by their friends' disappearances, Alice and Bill, the last remaining counsellors, leave the main cabin to investigate. They find the axe in Brenda's bed, the phone's disconnected, and Ned's truck out of commission. When the power goes out, Bill goes to check on the generator. Alice heads out to look for him and finds his body pinned with arrows to the generator's room. She flees to the main cabin to hide, only to be traumatised further when Brenda's body is thrown through the window. Soon after, Alice sees a vehicle pull up and rushes outside, thinking it is Steve. Instead, she's greeted by Mrs. Voorhees, a middle-aged woman who claims to be an old friend of Steve and his family. She reveals that her son Jason was the young boy who drowned in 1957, blaming his death on the counsellors who were supposed to be watching him, but were having sex instead. Revealing herself as the killer, she attempts to kill Alice, but Alice knocks her unconscious. At the shore, she tries to kill her again with a machete, but Alice gains the advantage and decapitates her. Exhausted, Alice boards and falls asleep inside a canoe, which floats out on Crystal Lake. Suddenly, Jason's decomposing corpse attacks her, at which point she awakens in a hospital, surrounded by a police sergeant and medical staff who are tending to her. When Alice asks about Jason, the sergeant says there was no sign of any boy. The film ends with a shot of ripples in Crystal Lake. All right, guys, what did we make of Friday the 13th, part one? Sheila, have you seen these movies before? In full? In full? Yeah, look, I think I saw them when I was about 13. Um, they didn't really stay with me. Like, I'd forgotten that Mrs. Voorhees was the killer. Oh, well, so it was, it was a surprise all over again. It was. It was. Did um, you spend it, the whole first movie wondering where Jason was? Yep. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Well, then you would have gotten killed in Scream because that was one of the questions. And I was also looking for his hockey mask. But right. then I had to, to look it up. Three. Yeah, number three. Mm. And the hockey mask is so iconic. Well, it's funny. You should, like that is the, that's what, that's the word. You said it. Um, this is an iconic film series. There's so much that's iconic. And what it's, we'll talk about the first film, but what's great is that the most iconic things aren't even in the first film. So mm. what we've got is the title, which Sean Cunningham says basically sold the movie before 
you know, you know, anything happened. He was like, I had this title and then they came up with a movie. So they had that. We've got the music, which is, which is quite iconic. The, mm. the, um, you know, however you want to do it. It's, I think it's actually Kiki, Ki and Ma, but, but it's, but for my whole life, it was, you know, mm. that's iconic. We've got the mythology of Jason and, and his mother is iconic. Uh, the show shocking ending. So, uh, it is a shock to realize that that Jason doesn't arrive till two and the mask doesn't come till three. And then a lot of the, you know, the stuff of the slow walking with the machete and that isn't isn't really established until much later. So here we're witnessing the birth of a legend. Yeah. But that, that wasn't your it's an evolution. It is. So were you, you you were disappointed, Sheila. It didn't have all the good stuff in it that you you were hoping for. Oh, I just found it just like the the acting is appalling absolutely <laughs> appalling. like really? really difficult you know and um uh, yeah I, just, I found them really hard going and and also there were the believability i mean seriously you telling me that old lady Voorhees had the uh physical strength to throw another woman through a window a dead, dead body. I mean, the suspension of disbelief is quite It's the spirit of something. Jason. It's really. But Jason was like 12 when he died. <laughs> so true. Um, no, no, those are, those are good points. The, the, the logic of, of uh, Mrs. Voorhees, because, you know, I, I quite like her performance, this sort of campy performance at the end. You know, she's yeah, an old, yeah. older she's... style performer. Yeah, like Ralph. Thespians. Yeah, that's big, right. Yeah. Ralph's very his performance is very big, and he's he's like acting for another film. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's he's yeah. he's in Fiddler on the Roof. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's got a death curse. Yeah, yeah. So, his but, performance but, is big. But Mrs. Voorhees' fighting is um, it's not good. You know, I mean, <laughs> no. it's entertaining though. No, but she looks like. It, I, I want to go and put a blanket around her and just get her a cup of tea, you know. And <laughs> she, instead, she's she's trying to kill freaks, and that is just—it looks like it's cold, and she's going to do a hip, you know. Yeah, yeah. And this is just a PSA um, to anyone who finds themselves in a position of um, getting sort of the upper hand on on a serial killer. Um, actually like like cut their head off or or really like make make sure they're dead like stab them 900 times mm. don't let them have the opportunity to awaken old lady Voorhees woke up from being unconscious three times now but this is the burden of knowledge though because this film is the is the first well sort of you know there are there are uh, a couple of you know uh Films before Halloween comes before a few years before, but you know this film does owe a lot to an Italian film which I've seen called Bay of Blood by Mario Bava, and um, we just got to mention that because if you watch that movie, you sort of get a bit outraged. <laughs> you sort of just go, "Oh my god!" Like this is like you know, it's from the 
maybe the early 70s late 60s and it is a you know a bunch of people going to a a, a locale and being picked off and some of the deaths the most famous deaths uh, you know being pinned together with a spear is from that film and stuff so you do so get they a little lifted a lot of material yeah and they, they never and they've sort of dodged it as well and they've never so it's fine if you come out and say because mario barber's a, a genius he's an incredible filmmaker and if you just come out and say we love mario barber it's fine they've never done that they've sort of ducked and weaved and uh, you know and and i don't, I don't there's I'm, a lot of talk about its its uh, similarities to halloween and, and there's a comparison there they talk about that all the time yeah but this is more glaring like this is like this film is the bay of blood you just watch it and you go oh my god this is the film <laughs> you know to a certain <laughs> degree but but that's sort of the proto slasher but this is the beginning of the slasher film you know as it creates its own genre and all the stuff you just mentioned sheila is um we is covered in in you know scream one and two you know and uh uh famously uh but but i guess in 1980 you know um for whatever reason, well, look, even then, the three times getting up is too much. But there must, all of these things that uh, that we take for granted now uh, are in this movie. A lot of them, I think, were sort of in in process of being built, like like the, you know, those those jump scares and yeah, like the endless getting <laughs> getting up at the end, the shock endings, all of those things. Like now, it's so painful now because it, like I'm pretty sure you could watch episodes of Quincy that do you know the yeah. same yeah. thing or yeah. or whatever episodes of house that probably use stuff in this from this movie yeah you you do, you do have to look at it uh with that in mind that that a lot of these a lot of these tropes and techniques are cliche now but back then they weren't and but i did find myself generally having a jump scare at at times particularly in the second uh, Friday the Thirteenth, uh, with the cat in the sort of opening scene, nice. uh, it's kind of a fake scare. That that got me because the music is so effective as well. Well, they talk about the music, Henry. What, what, what Henry Manfredini, Manfredini says that um, they only wanted the music uh, to appear, you know, w- when the killer is present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those jump scares. Um, or whatever. If the killer's not around, the music doesn't fire up. Yep. There, there is one exception. And that is there's music when we first see Ralph, the town loony, right. to, turns up to tell them they're all doomed. Um, but what I love about the music is I love film scores that have defined creative barriers like this, you know, that, that have set up rules. Um, I think they work really well. And so Manfredini, he had the, uh, he had the job um, of creating a score that would represent the killer in, in absence um it's so it sort of cues the audience to uh the killer's invisible menace and this is something that was also done in the 1975 film jaws which uh that that was a key thing to do because um jaws was quite well known for being not a very scary looking fake shark so they had to come up with ways to create the menace without actually seeing him so similar sort of deal here um so also the music sort of cuts out when something uh was going to happen so the audience would relax a little bit and then the scare is made a little bit more effective. So you'd have all this suspenseful stuff and then that would stop and you think, oh, okay, nothing's going to happen. And then bang, something happens and the music goes nuts again. The director, Sean Cunningham, uh, he wanted a choir in the score, but the budget uh, wouldn't allow that. Um, he wanted something akin to the music of um, Kerstof Penderecki, who I think is a Polish, uh, yeah, pretty sure he's a Polish 
20, 20th century orchestral composer. And much of his work includes voices that utilize strange pronunciations and, and vocal effects, which are quite disturbing. Um, so instead, uh, Manfred Eating came up with the idea to whisper vocal sounds and feed them into a tape delay unit. Um, and as you said earlier, you, you kind of hear them as chew rather than a ki and a ma, which is supposed to be um, suggestive of the words kill and mummy, I think. So yeah, the score was composed in a few weeks and recorded in a friend's basement, which is uh, pretty impressive to get an orchestra in someone's fucking basement. That's awesome. Um, the score also has a pretty heavy Bernard Herrmann influence, particularly the music of Psycho, which I'm sure you would have heard a little bit of that. So the strings, yeah, the cutting, the cutting, stabbing, slashing strings, which uh, was yeah first done by Bernard Herrmann on Hitchcock's Psycho, and I think put on steroids in this in this particular film. It's augmented by by brass and other instruments and stuff, and and also that eerie kind of vocal stuff that's going on. Um, but yeah, I think it's uh, sort of Bernard Herrmann on steroids and it's, it's very effective. Mm. You know, Sheila, this film cost 550 or $550,000 back then and it made something like $59 million. So I think that equates to, you know, something astronomical today. Yeah. Um, you, said, you said it's no good. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but some people do. So maybe we can we can come up with some theories. No, that's great. I mean, it. What do you want me to try and find good things about it? No, I want you to try and think about why. Um, w- what is it that people respond to in this? Uh, could be the animal cruelty, the <laughs> killing <laughs> of a snake on camera. Oh, yes. Um, there mm. was that and actually throwing a cat to the point where it's like a bit disorientated when it uh, comes through. Um, it was the Wild West back then. Oh, no, you could just kill animals. I, look, um, no, I, I can just give you some things that I noticed. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, uh, I found, um, Al- is it Alice? The main character, yes. um, I found, I know this is ludicrous, but her hair, very um, distracting. Why? <laughs> her, her, put, her pudding bowl haircut was <laughs> next level. I she, mean, She, she and, had and the princess die. That's the princess die. I lived through that era and even then those haircuts were fucking awful. So really that wasn't, that wasn't, because I, I'm out of context. So I watch and I go, oh yeah, that was, that was pretty crazy. They were crazy back then. They had mad haircuts. That, I mean, that haircut was really destructive. And, <laughs> and um, I loved how they put her in such a sensible shirt. Right. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's true though. <laughs> no, that's important. That's important. Like these, these things are important for her to be the final girl. Yes. You yeah. Know. Well, I mean, you know, and I liked the um, in one and two. No doubt you've noticed the fifth wheel incel character of Ned. I didn't even clock the other guy. I the don't practical know. Practical joker was. guy. Yeah. Yeah. You the, got Ned you know, and Ted. Yeah. The the incels. You know the, <laughs> the, the, well, the guys who get nothing. Yeah. Ned. Ned is actually uh, he's given birth to a term here called the practical joker victim. Right. Believe it or not. 
which uh, comes from a guy's book by the name of David Grove, uh, who wrote a book called Making Friday the 13th, The Legend of Camp Blood. And I think right. he's, he, he suggests that that uh, that trope of the, the practical Joker victim was born in this film. They're always really unlikable, generally speaking. <laughs> no, they, 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 they're just, yeah, because as you say, they, they never, ever get the pussy. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're just losers. They're just like I don't know, like you know, they yeah. He faked drowning to oh, that was you know was big, yeah to patch on with that girl and right, which you know, I mean that's, that's coming up later. Yeah. Show show that. Oh yeah, <laughs> well, <that's>, uh... <laughs> you better believe that's coming up later. <laughs> uh, well, actually, he's involved. He's involved in some. Well, all of these camp movies now, you know, this is the don't, now. Don't let the progressives say that there's no there, there's no progress because, you know, I watch this and the Native American stuff in all of these oh camp movies is, is is it's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, like, well, the cop saying oh sit on it, Tonto. Tonto, you know, like I mean, coaches. That yeah. is next you know? level. Yeah. yeah, I don't really understand the deal with camp summer camp and americans and and why they're so rabid about it but well we talked a lot about we talked about this as well so maybe we can expand upon yeah we talked about this in meatballs but but the whole indian uh influence or the faux american indian influence throughout all this stuff too surely they're not doing it today but it seems like they did a lot of it back in the day Mm. yeah is it to get is it sort of because you're you know you're getting back to nature and you're trying they're trying sort of in a really ham-fisted way trying to incorporate indigenous elements into their camp like you're, you're on the land and all of that I, I guess so and you know they go they do outdoor activities like canoeing and archery is is always you always see that in, in... it's always tomahawks and they do the full headdress the full ymca mm. village people yeah. headdress yeah you know which i don't think you can wear anymore no you can't do that anymore If you enjoy what we do here on the New Flesh Podcast, there are a number of ways you can contribute to the success of the show. Consider supporting us financially by becoming a Patreon member and donating monthly or yearly. Alternatively, you can donate money through the Buy Me A Coffee platform. If you're strapped for cash at this point in time, there are a number of other ways to support the New Flesh. You can give us a rating or review through Apple Podcasts. These help others to find our show and help spread the word. Or you can tell your friends about us. Don't underestimate the power of a podcast recommendation. And now, back to the show. I was always terrified as a kid that my parents were going to send me to a summer camp because, you know, as a little kid growing up in the 70s, early 80s in Australia, you would, you know, all the movies, all the midday movies had, you know, summer camps and stuff Mm. like that in them. And I constantly, I remember constantly saying to my parents, you wouldn't send me somewhere like that, would you? And they're like, no, we don't do that in Australia. But I always had this uh, fear of of being sent off to one because to me they didn't, you know, they looked quite terrifying. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I I felt the same way as a kid. Like I would never go, especially for the length of time. It seems like they're there all (laughs) summer. They're there for three (laughs) months solid. A different person is coming back to you. You know, like when you send your kid. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they come back and it's, it's, I don't know, it's literally a different person. <laughs> what do you, what do you, what were the parents doing the whole time? Just having the summer off, just having like cocktail parties and stuff. Co- cocktails and swinging. 
like yeah. Yeah. Okay. there's too much we don't know though about that time like like i don't because it's you know maybe some of our american listeners could fill us in but like the we don't know what the economic situation the 70s wasn't a good time the economy wasn't good so i don't know they like, look expensive you know those summer yeah. camps I think so. Well, Camp um, Crystal Lake doesn't look expensive. That looks pretty bottom tier, but yeah, a lot of them do. Yeah. Um. So the film is like it's you know it's such interesting you know um I I think that one of the things that we enjoy is the thing that well uh, I think defines cinema itself and that's voyeurism. You know, voyeurism is is just so heavy in these films and it's it, i think it, it you know because the film uses that phantom pov mm. uh, a lot as well every and but there's a lot of peeping you know uh and now i know peeping isn't as big now as it was um but you know at the end of the day but what people forget about peeping is this like oh peeping that's disgusting and, and voyeurism is disgusting you say bro do you understand that with a film you're literally hollow man like you're an invisible person in a room watching people do everything like that cinema is voyeurism you know and and these films are a little bit more honest about it and the best films horror films and whatnot whatnot, really play with that and uh and get everyone watching everyone we're watching them watching someone else you know Uh, and everyone's breaking the rules so but ultimately and look don't get me wrong this film isn't jaws uh it doesn't have spielberg doesn't have that skill doesn't have um you know those actors it's not the exorcist for the same reasons it's not the shining it's and you know what it's not nightmare on elm street which is a better film uh because nightmare on elm street is actually very very clever and um and you know an idea for the ages and based on you know some sort of um cases in africa and whatnot of uh, that west craven had looked into but this film's wildly successful this film's i think serving a really at some kind of different purpose you know i really think it is a youth Mm. a youth movement you know, these films. Yeah. But maybe I can get into that a bit more later. I've got a great review of the second one from our mate Roger Ebert. Ah, of course. Yes. He famously hates uh, horror movies. Yes. Mm. I've, I've got a question for you, Sheila. Yeah. Are Jason and his mum serial killer cock blockers? Is that the point of the film? How do you mean? Well, they don't want anyone to have sex. Ah. I just can't stand it. They're blocking those cocks. Yes. So I think Mrs. Old Lady Voorhees took exception to Jason drowning while, and this is this was actually one of the grossest things that she said. Um, it was along the lines of, they weren't watching him. They were making love, you know, like um, mm. not having sex. They were making love. I told you, um, people who say making love, it's always creepier. It is mm, uh, never yeah. not creepy. Yeah. So, yes, I think you are correct, Ricky. She does not want anyone to have sex because that's how Jason drowned. But did he really drown? I don't understand. Why is he back? If he drowned and why is he in a state of decomposition in the lake? I don't, because I mean, I don't understand. Is it um, a, is it supernatural? Not yet. What do you not mean? Yet. Not yet. Well, <laughs> technically, technically, it doesn't it doesn't get fully supernatural until number four. Okay, all right. Like, so you can you can still hedge. I mean, it's bonkers, but you can still hedge a bit and say, "Oh no, he's mad strong," and they've they've sort of given him these these serious looking flesh wounds, even when they're in the head and stuff. 
Um, but no one ever like chops his head off or burns him or puts him in acid. So it's only until the fourth one when you start to go, okay, nah, he's he's dead. He's he's, he's, he's dead. <laughs> so why is he drowned? Do you know what I mean? Like, how can he if if it all started because he drowned? Yes. And he's in a state of decomposition at well, the end of the fit. What is he though? I, I I took that to 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 be that that was just Alice's dream, right? Yes, it was. So right. Um, so, so here's the chronology. So Jason Jason drowns in fifty seven. Mm. Okay, fifty eight are the first murders. Apparently, they're the two murders at the beginning of the first film. Yes. Uh, is that is that old lady Borges? Yeah, apparently. Yes. Okay. So. For some reason, she takes twenty years off. She she, right. she she decides, you know what, I'm going to kick back. Just you know. Well, was the camp closed right. for twenty years? Is that? Yeah, she's just going to like go and get a proper job, like you know, just do, do America, whatever, to, like just have a good time. But then she's she 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 decides that she wants to get you know get the band back together. So around I think 1979. Um, right. She she comes back uh, to nail the, the 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 new group in the in the first one. Yes. Um. At the end of the first film, that image after she's decapitated, Alice getting pulled into the lake by the decomposing Jason, which yes. is a trope of the series, is sort of set up as a as a dream, okay. mildly ambiguous, but that's a dream. Whereas um, yeah, and then the which is it's different in the second one. So where has he come from? In the second one? Well, that's mm. the mystery, isn't it? Well, the, 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 that's we can talk about that when we talk about the second one. But like, but I feel Sorry. like the, I'm just I'm so confused. Um, I know I should have my head around this a bit better, but it just okay. Well, that's good. You've cleared that up. That was a dream. <laughs> All right. <Yes. laughs> but the look that they don't they, they it sort of has this surreal yes and improvisational quality to it you know this this series like they've seemed to have at a few points gone yes and and then they then that's why it gets so bonkers you know um because if if they'd been too logical about it like i really don't think we'd be where we are Mm. we wouldn't have all these movies so something about wouldn't have gone into space and become a cyborg through, through nano through nanotechnology Evil gets an upgrade. <laughs> Evil gets an upgrade. Yes. So, um, yeah. So I think that that's part of the joy of the film is that they really have just run with it, and you know, nothing was off the table. Is what I'm saying. Truly, you know? nothing was. Okay. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. You've cleared that up for me. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well. <laughs> uh, me too. Stuff in this particular movie. Um. So in 1957, the counselor. You know, one of the counselors lies to get some action. I think she says, he said I was special. And he says, yeah, that's, you know, she says whatever. And then that, that so that's lies to get sex. Um, gaslighting, you know. Uh, Enos, the guy who drives, uh, he's the truck driver who drives Annie, the hitchhiker, uh, the hot hitchhiker to yep. um, the camp. Um, he says, all the girls up there gonna going to look good as you. And then he grabs her ass when he pushes her into the truck. So, mm-hmm. I mean... That that he was just helping her up to get you, yeah, it's helping her up. But like you know, I mean, Aziz Ansari didn't do much more, and look at him, he's gone. So, <laughs> uh, is sex all you ever think about? No, sometimes I just think about kissing women. 
you know, that's what a mm-hmm. guy says in the car. I think that practical joke. I think that what he's leaving out is probably without their consent. That's probably what he's thinking. I <laughs> While they're um, asleep. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, that was just a bit of a kissy kiss. You know, just, you know, whatever. Uh, Steve letches on to Alice. Uh, he yes. says, you're very talented. Mm. You're very pretty. Mm. And just touches her face. Was this something that was the thing to do in the 70s? Could you what, just say? I, I, was yeah. it implied that they had a relationship previously, though? I, I thought that's what it was. It, it was, but it looked like she'd gone cold on it. Yeah. Um. So, but but think think about that. Like, it, imagine even saying you look pretty today. Mm. Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine, like, a red button would be pressed, mushroom cloud, you know? Like, <laughs> you said, you go, oh, you look pretty today. And someone goes, so they just go, what the fuck? <laughs> Who the fuck do you think you are? And then you go, oh, sorry, I just think it's a pretty dress. And they go, just what the fuck? You know? <laughs> they just launch across the table and kick the shit out of you. But I tell you, I tell you, Alice dealt with it the way we all used to deal with it, which is like just sort of give it a, you know, an uncomfortable look, and then she just got on with her day. She just walked off and just <laughs> and went on. She went on to the next thing and went down to get that guy for some paint thinner. So she man- manfully just put up with it. <laughs> she, she just, honestly, it was so rife. You know that would have been the seventieth time that had happened to her. You know that month. So uh, she just sort of shrugged it off and went, mm, "Okay, gross." Because that guy, you know that Steve off, was. Because you know? what Steve is building up to is the big slam back in the day, which I think we should bring back sometimes. Is to say, you're frigid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think tonight I might just call Katie frigid. Yeah. Yeah, you're frigid, baby. You're frigid. And then, uh. <laughs> which I believe comes from the frigid air. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> so Ned, the practical joker, he fakes death uh, to get a bit of a kissy kiss uh, during the mouth to mouth, which again is that's that's enough to ruin you. Uh, Ralph gains energy to the house. Um, to tell them about the curse. He's inside. It's crazy Ralph. But I think he also He's in the pantry. He is in the pantry. And he kind of, I think, is just up for whatever, you know. (laughs) Just doing some peeping. Peeping. And, you know, he's giving you the information you need to know. But if a titty pops out and he's there, he wouldn't kick it out of bed. (laughs) And really, (sighs) the biggest crimes are just the endless showering and changing that we see. which is all on the menu, I think. It's a different time. Like, you know, back then, I guess they were just like, you know, there wasn't the ubiquity of, of flesh on the internet that we have. So, and all of those things seem to mean more, you know, I guess. They were more charged. I, I feel like they could have gone further. <laughs> of course <laughs> you did. <laughs> you think, but um, then again, do you think but they, this would have reviled? Like people would have thought that this was pornography. Well, uh, no, it was the, the 70s, though. I mean, there was a lot of it. Sorry, you go. You sorry, go, I was just going to say, I, I had a bit of a trivia here. The director actually uh, had a history of, of directing softcore porn, as did Wes Craven. So, oh, fabulous. Well, the, yeah. you guys missed some um, reverse um, sort of uh, Me Too. Oh, the bar, the, the woman at the bar. Is that uh, no, it was Sandy at the coffee shop. Yes, uh, Sandy, the uh, saucy old bitch that she is. Uh, mm. She, he said, "How much will that be, Sandy?" And she goes, "A night on the town." <laughs> so she slazed onto him, which was uh, pretty hot. It would be like in Kingpin, you know, with the, yeah. uh, the woman I mean, movie. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and yeah. Does she turn around? Does that the woman who turns around and goes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, Sandy. You remember that, Ricky? I do. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great Kingpin. scene. It's a great scene in Kingpin. Let's watch Kingpin. I forgot. Uh, I forgot about it. <laughs> but yeah, so you know, Sandy is hitting hitting the Me Too heights. Yes. Well, hashtag uh, men too. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hashtag not all men. Well, look, we've got to give props to the film at least because of the gender of the villain. You know, which yes, is- absolutely. I liked that. Yeah. I like Mrs. Mrs. Voorhees being the, the killer. And if she was a bit more like Vasquez, yes, from Aliens, then we I might believe it a bit more. It's just that you know, so they've gone for a spectacular twist, but then they haven't really cared about anything that they've done that that person's had to do in the movie before that. As you say, the body going through the window, you just go, "Oh my god!" Like, do you know how heavy that is? Like, mm. Jesus, and you know? the impact of the spear going through Kevin Bacon's chest, but um, I saw the length of that spear and it's not really possible that that spear went under the bed. Right. Mm. Yeah, that is, that's, that's unfortunate. I, I think you're overthinking things, Sheila. Oh, sorry. I thought you wanted me to be well, uh, you know. Well, <laughs> no, you've done your research. I appreciate it. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. I, I'm pretty sure that you guys are surprised. I, I don't even read the articles that for the news flash that I do. Don't look, don't show me behind the curtain. Okay. I, I, I don't yeah. want to see you know how the sausage that. is made. You All know right? I don't read them. So I thought you'd be quite <laughs> impressed that I made myself watch these and didn't just look up the wiki. On no, them. that's good. Um, should we bring in this second movie? So, so what's our me too rating? What's the me too? Um, well, what do you think? After I've given you the charges, what do you think out of 10? Sheila, you go first. Oh, look, given the time it was made and stuff like that, I'm just going to give it a seven. Yeah, it's pretty high. I was going to give it six. Oh, yeah, I think it's six. I think it's a six because, you know, it just, yeah, I feel like, no, it's pretty bad. Maybe a seven. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not as, like, there's stuff in it, but tonally, it just seems like, a lot of ignorance, a lot of mm. it, you know, whereas, um, you know, we've watched other ones like Stripes and stuff, which was, you know, just, it was about two sex pests. You know? <laughs> 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 Who joined the army? <laughs> you know? Yeah. This is, like, this is young people horsing around. Yeah, this is that's young, right. Yeah, young people horsing around. I mean, Ned Ned's sex assault uh, when he pretends to be dead, I mean, it's pretty terrible. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I mean. Oh no! In general, not too bad. Some of, you, some of this shit's still going on though out there. Oh yeah. Um, and young people are choking each other. That's their thing. So you what know, do you mean? That's their thing. That's, <laughs> if I if I if I if they had a catch cry, it'd just be we're woke and we choke each other. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Oh, I can't talk. Yeah, I just came up with that. You like it? That's good. Uh, can we can we steal it? Wokey yeah. chokies. That's oh, what I'm right. going to call them. Well, before we get on to the second one, uh, let's just talk reviews and and I got a couple of tidbits of trivia. Um, as you would expect, all the reviews were negative. Los Angeles Times referred to the film as silly, boring, youth-geared uh, horror movie, uh, although she did praise the score. Um, let me see. Oh, she she also uh, she also praised the acting as well. Oh, believe for it or fuck not, sake. Sheila. 
Uh, she no, deemed it natural and appealing. So oh, there you go. God. Um, Variety, however, deemed the film low budget in the worst sense, with no apparent talent or intelligence to offset its technical inadequacies. Um, Friday the 13th has nothing to exploit but its title. Um, and on and on it goes for that. So in terms of trivia, I think you already covered this a little bit, Astro. Uh, where they sold the film on the title alone. They took out, took out a full-page ad in Variety, um, and they were able to finance the film based solely off that. So, um, yeah, that's how they got uh, got the deal done. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. you got to give it up. you got to give it up. The, mm. People just need to, to, you know, just check the Grain-Eyed Monster and give it up. Like, that is brilliant. It doesn't, like, fuck what you think of the movie. Like, you know, having the balls to take out that ad and to recognise that the, you know, that that title is boss. Mm. You know, and it had tagline as well, saying, like, the most terrifying movie you'll ever see or whatever. I mean, that's, like, Barnum and Bailey stuff. That's great. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, love it. Love yeah. all that. Also, uh, Siskel and Ebert on their show... Uh, they hated the movie so much they gave away the ending in the review. Oh, wow. Um, pricks. What, come on. What a, couple, what a couple of old pricks. Absolutely. I know. They slammed it in a special edition of their show called The War on Women, which focused on misogynistic slasher movies, but they failed to notice that a lot of men are also killed in this movie and uh, The Survivor is a Woman. Uh, but as you would expect, all of this just boosted ticket sales, so... All right, well, we'll move on to number two. should Friday the 13th, 1981, be any different? Friday the 13th, part two. The body count continues. 14. All doomed. You're all doomed. 15. God. 16. 17. 18. 19.
Two months have passed since the murders at uh, Camp Crystal Lake, and thankfully everyone's moved on. Alice, our hero, who survived the first film, is now taking some time to herself in another lonely little cottage, seemingly not too far away from the infamous camp. Um, Inadvisable. After a very helpful dream sequence, recapping the entire ending of the first film, she discovers a decomposing severed head in the refrigerator before she's murdered with an ice pick um, through the skull. Uh, by a man in a check sh- in a check shirt. Years later, a new set of teens roll up to Crystal Lake, but don't worry, it's on the other side of the river. Uh, Crazy Ralph informs them that they're all doomed. Chiseled Paul Holt is the head counselor charged with bringing the potential counselors up to spec. There's the jokester Ted, Bralis hippie Sandra and her boyfriend Jeff, Bralis hardbody Terry, who is pursued by sex pest Scott. Vicky, who's got the hots for Mark, the hunk on wheels. And there's also Ginny, our girl next door and budding child psychologist. Paul tells a campfire story about Jason Voorhees, uh, the boy who drowned because of, a la- of lazy, sex-hungry counsellors, thus spurring on his mother to pull off to murder sprees. He plants the idea that Jason's body was never found and that he's been living in the woods all this time, uh, waiting to have his vengeance. After a prank from Ted, Paul tells everyone that it's just a story and that Crystal Lake's off limits. Crazy Ralph is perving on the new balls when he's garroted by barbed wire. Hippie Sandra and Jeff sneak into Camp Crystal Lake and find the remnants of an animal before they're caught by Deputy Winslow, our hapless cop. Winslow's the next to get it. He spots and chases a man with a burlap sack on his head into the woods and gets a hammer claw to the back of the head. The counsellors split up for one last hurrah before the course begins. Ginny has a drunken theory that Jason might be out there still, traumatised and unable to distinguish between right and wrong. The councils are picked off one by one. Ginny and Paul are jumped by the killer and Paul is seemingly dispatched. Ginny is chased all the way to the killer's lair, filled not just with the fresh bodies of her fellow councillors, but with the rotting head and dirty old sweater of Mrs. Voorhees, which all but confirms that the killer is Jason. Ginny uses her smarts and her child psych skills to don the sweater and trick Jason, but he comes to just before she can land the final blow. Paul returns. He's not dead. Uh, As he wrestles with Jason, Ginny grabs a machete and brings it down on Jason's shoulder. Uh, Pretty deep wound. Uh, Paul and Ginny return to their cabin, and just when they think they're safe, an unmasked and rather sort of deformed-looking Jason bursts through the windows and grabs Ginny. That's number two. What did we think? I think uh, for the second installment, They've stepped up a level in relation to the birds, I think. Oh, the my God. I can't believe you just film. said that. I said, my, my thing, the birds are hotter. I've so written true. that down. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I wrote birds as well. Yeah. The chicks in this film are way hot and DTF. Yep. And we got to see a little George Bush as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, all of that is true. Isn't it amazing that we all agreed that the quality of women had gone up? <laughs> yeah. I go I go further as well. Now, because the last one was in 1980, it sort of had the, this sort of hangover 1970s uh, aesthetic and vibe about the whole film. Uh, the times are changing. Terry in this movie is a proto hardbody. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like that is not a seventies look no, that she's got. You know what I mean? Eighties, eighties aerobics. Yeah, yes. bare midriff. Yeah, yep. I was like, okay. wow. It's it's because because there are some seventies elements in this as well. You know, I think eras eras always overlap, but 
I really was starting to notice the 80s, uh, you know, taking over in this, mm. in this, I was like, wow. The like, Jane Fonda effect. Yes. Mm. So um, that was interesting. But I love that we all noted that the women were hot. Yes. <laughs> uh, Although I will say there was one character who looked inappropriately young. She was, actually. Yeah, 16, wasn't she? 16. Oh, come on. Really? They had to cut her nude scene. They did. Shit. And they found out all too late. Like, you <gasps> know, and um, like, you know, it, so in other words, that like they they in the stroke of uh, you know, just in, in an instant they became criminals. <laughs> oh my goodness. Had no one no one thought to check her age? Seventies, just loose set up, mm. you know. Oh crumbs. So anyway, that's the hippie. Um, yeah, the the one with the the fuller hair. But but the thing about what I don't get about that is, like I know that time like parenting's different, times are different. But what the fuck is the deal? Like, why is there just like heaven forbid she should have parents or guardians? You know mm. that that we're looking <laughs> looking into this, <laughs> or that anyone looked at forms or like you know what I mean? They thought she was at summer camp. Yeah, but I mean, Brooke Shields was what? Was she sixteen when she did Blue Lagoon? You know, like it was very. And and also, I think Brooke Shields was eleven when she let that famous photographer, when her mum let that famous photographer take nude shots of her. So mm. you know, it was it was a very different sort of um, atmosphere. Um, parents weren't uh, as responsible, probably. Don Draper. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sally. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So anyway, um, I think I like I think I like the second one. Well, I did too. It kind of goes. I, I I like them more and more as they go along, pretty much. Uh, you know, uh, and this is this is where it starts. I, I really preferred this one, and they found their feet, and you know, there there was a effort to attempt to integrate the lead girl uh, Ginny into this story a bit better she was in you know they at least gave her that background of you know of uh, as clumsily as it was introduced of her being a child psych and then she uses that skill Mm. you know well she she taught she firstly you know um theorizes about Jason and then she and, and and then uses that skill at the end which is um that's an improvement a definite improvement uh different screenwriter um, than the first one. We have to give credit to the first screenwriter for casually coming up with, uh, you know, I'm sure Sean, Sean Cunningham had his own uh, ideas, but, you know, we have to go with who's credited and the original writer, you know, has casually come up with this entire mythology that everyone else is using. But this guy has has definitely improved upon it. Anything notable? Um, a really hot dude with a slingshot um, shooting uh, pebbles at, hot cheeks asses as they walk past and then sleazily coming out of the bushes and just going you know mm. and, and he that- steals steals her clothes <sighs> later when she's skinny dipping this is all on the rap sheet don't worry it is yeah i'm yeah. sure but they've made him super hot so so that you thought that guy was hot and- that's that's scott yeah scott's well, hot why is scott hot because he's got that Superman look about him. He's got the the raven black hair and the crystal blue eyes, and he's well mm. put together. He's wearing, jaw. yeah, he's wearing an outfit that you know, like from Saturday Night Fever, um, at the camp leisure suit. Yeah, well, you know, he's um. So you're you're willing to look past the slingshot and the theft of clothing? 
Um, as a parent, no, but uh, <laughs> as a as a female uh, who you know who if I wasn't being recorded, yes. How much? No. How much can a sex <laughs> pest get away with if he's if he's um, put together? Well, you ask Lee, Leonardo DiCaprio, where's his Me Too shit? <laughs> so true. Do you know so what I true. mean? The so man, true. the man just goes out with younger and younger women, and nobody ever says, "Oh, that's repulsive." Um, whereas, Apart from Ricky you Gervais. know. Yeah, well, good. he calls it. But, you know, people like Rod Stewart who are a little bit NQR and go out with younger younger and younger women, everyone's just like, oh, gross. So, um, mm. you know, he's on the same trajectory uh, as that. But, you know, he's, I mean, I don't find him attractive, but so, a lot of people So what you're do. saying is you can, if you're good looking, you can pretty much get away with anything. Well, I think that's hot privilege, isn't it? Hot, I mean, I, I don't endorse that. I don't endorse. So, so if, if sex Harvey pests. Weinstein, if Harvey Weinstein was a good-looking bloke, he wouldn't be in jail right now. We've talked about this. He's disgusting. Well, Matt okay? Lauer, Matt Lauer's <laughs> still running around, isn't he? Mm. Well, and yeah. and he had a button in his office apparently to lock the door. He did have an Austin Powers style button, mm. but you know, I don't know his baldingness. I think maybe did him in as well. Right. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, I mean, oh, I I think that, I mean, sex pestery is a disgrace. It doesn't matter if you're good looking or if you're not as good looking. But Catherine but... Deneuve says that she doesn't mind a bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you mean like with the ass padding and stuff yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. The French, Catherine yeah, Deneuve and French. the women of France. They've got different mm-hmm. rules. The women of France have said, we don't we we don't want this American rules. We we kind of like playing how to get, you know, <laughs> like a slap on the behind. Yeah, look, I mean, every, I guess every country's got different rules, you know, like the um, Japanese women having to wear heels to the office and stuff yes. like the that. The labor minister, know. I remember that. The labor minister said that it's perfectly fine. He said, no, 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 I think it looks good. <laughs> <laughs> or something <laughs> which something, is disgraceful but yeah man. no look i mean uh, being a sex pest is disgraceful right. but yes i do think that hotter people get away with being sex pests okay speaking of not hot people jason Voorhees makes his first appearance in this movie as the lead killer i think he steals the show um you know because they fixed that logic hole that, that we pointed out you know they, we've well, said where, that, where did he come from where's he been well they've They've fixed one and they've ruined more <laughs> is what I'm saying. So what they've done, like, so you've, you've rightly pointed out that um, there's, a, the well, it makes it quite tragic in a way because, you know, poor Jason was out there all this time while his mother's been stalking around like ships in the night. They, they, they never met, you know, so one simple turn, it's made it quite tragic and, I mean, and stupid at the same time. So you're telling me that while old Lady Voorhees, for seemingly 20 or 30 years, was, she was you probably know, 45. skulking around. 70s, 45. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, she's been skulking around that forest in the dark. Yes. And Jason's been skulking around in the forest in the dark. Mm. It's like um, in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet at the end when they, you know. <sighs> Just a second, they 
Maybe they missed each other, you know? So Baz Luhrmann didn't write Romeo and Juliet. No, I know, but that, that, what, the, the <laughs> why didn't you, why did you say really? Shakespeare? Because, why didn't you say Shakespeare? No, screw you. The reason I did is because that shit's not in the play. <laughs> there you go. I said it. So the, the smarty pants who were listening, I said Baz Luhrmann because he made that shit up, okay, that oh, thing at the end. They never God. saw each other and, you know, yes. you know. Uh, anyway. So, um, yeah, that, that is quite tragic, but ludicrous, you know, so because they just, they just want you to go all in, like, you know, like on Jason so quick and, um, you know, and, and he's got the head of his mum in, and it took me, it's taken me a lot of viewings to really even register that it's the same head from the beginning mm. because the timeline, the, this movie's quite, these movies, the early ones particularly, are quite, European in the way they deliver information. So American films typically, you know, and and or or even just modern films, whatever. Like there's a lot of exposition. There's a lot of you know uh, really big breadcrumbs. Like we, we'll we'll just say it. We'll have a big crawl at the beginning that'll explain the whole setup. Characters will just say, "Hey, remember when mm. we did this thing?" You know what I mean? Like I was watching Taken the other night, and one character was like. Remember when we did, and they just went through a, a list of stuff basically <laughs> that they did or that you had to know. And I went, Oh, yeah, now yep. and all that. So these movies are very European. They're not saying anything. That, 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 and I really respect that. Now, it was probably just because, you know, a mixture of they're moving quickly, they're young, they're low budget or whatever. I don't care really why, but there's so many, uh, things in these these early few movies that are ambiguous either knowingly or unknowingly yeah. and um and i think it makes it really clever because you know yeah you get that dumb shit where we just say wait a minute they've both been in the woods together you know and that doesn't make sense but like there's stuff like they always just go with the feeling like the way argento does argento doesn't care about dario argento doesn't care about the story he cares about feeling and emotion you know and so the head at the beginning and the head at the end of this movie you know at no point does anyone if this was a modern movie or if they were remaking it i'm almost certain if that with that beat someone would say you know like would explain all about the head you know what I mean? Like they tell you yeah. everything how he got about it, how he where, got where it, he stashed it, where he stashed it. Like, like, and that you would be clear. There'd even be a. There's not even any dates on this movie, so you actually have to watch it a bunch of times to figure out. Really, pay attention carefully to, to that. There's a five year gap between the first scene of number two and the rest of the movie. So look at the head. The head is is like you know desiccated at the end. It's like a, it's like the Beetlejuice head. Whereas in the at the beginning it's fresh, it's like a couple of months. So Tom Savini, the uh, the brilliant effects guy, well actually I don't know if he was on the second one, but whoever the no, FX guy is, he, wasn't. he was. Well, there you go. So the FX guys just had to think about that. Okay, we need two heads. One of them's got to be like all dried. The other one has to be sort of a bit fresh. You know, mm. it's mad. Originally they had the uh, the eyes open at the end. You're waiting for that, aren't you? I'm waiting for it. Yeah. Every time. But then they they didn't do it. I love it, but why that really pisses me off? Only because why, like, I know that they went a different direction after that, like, you know, but when you think about it, it works emotionally. And why is it any sillier than anything else? True. Yeah. Do you know why? Why mm. are they getting all embarrassed then? Like, oh, we can't have the eyes open. That's just silly. And you say, is it? Is that silly? <laughs> I think that's the quote that I think the uh, director said that would be too silly. And you say, well, well, why don't you just have it be, you know, a, quote dream 
or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's, I don't know. That could be the new thing because they, they repeat the beat, you know, of Jason at the end. Yeah. Coming through. Mm. Terrifying looking like wolf, wolf man, Jason. Mm. Yeah, but they, they change his look in the third one, don't they? Oh, they change his look in every film. That's part of the joy of the film. It's like, right. you know, um, you know, he's different in every film. I mean, there is a main actor who takes over later, Kane Hodder, uh, and he is Jason now. Like, um, you can't imagine anyone else being him. But, you know, still, you know, his facial features, like, you know, change in every single film, and they have a lot of fun with that, you know, and you just go, wow, this is a really different look. Whereas this this look is, yeah, this is like Wolfman, Wolfman Jason. Like, he's got long hair. Mad looking face. I don't know. Mm. One one scene that really uh really got me was that when uh when who is it Ginny is uh hiding under the bed and Jason's kind of like looking for her and then a rat she sees a rat and it's sort of crawling up near her face and stuff and then you just see a pile of her piss. Uh, ten out of ten. I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I just did that. That. I, people pissing themselves in in scary movies is is just full commitment. I love mm. it. Happens in Ransom as well. The kid does that. Uh, it's just so, you know, visceral and and re- it's probably one of the most realistic parts of the movie because mm. you just go, well, yep, that'd probably be about right. I love it. That's a great scene. Mm. It's full on. Another progressive turn in this. We've got a guy in a wheelchair. Yes. So I mean, these films just get no or anything that didn't happen you know, two seconds ago is labelled a colonialist, you know, disgusting, just, you know, white white is right or something pamphlet. And yet, you know, these people are just trying their best in 1980 with the world they lived in, you know. And here we have, um, actually, it was, it, was a, it was great because, as we said before, he wasn't, he's not a Mary Sue. He, he was like a condescending like overly skilled or fucking sassy guy. He, he, he wasn't a brilliant hacker or coder. He'd be sassy. He'd be so sassy now. He'd just be like, you know, ridiculous or like, yeah, or really overly skilled. Yeah. But instead he was like, he was realistically um, cool and he yeah. was totally going to get laid yeah, and he, he got an equal opportunity death. I, I thought that sending him down the stairs was a bit unfair. That was, you know, but That's a, that is a product of yeah, I know, his, I know. His wheelchair. No, he was a really cool character, and um, I, I really reveled in the inclusivity of it, and the fact that he was, like you said, he was, he was a Mac. He was that chick mm. was gagging for him. Mm. And, she was so aggressive. I know. Mm. And, I loved it. But he was also, <laughs> he wasn't. Um, he was written really well. He was just a confident, um, nice guy. But here's the thing. You can always pick, you know, sort of discriminate, discriminatory people or, you know, to be frank with you, a lot of people on the hard left are, you know, this way. Um, you can always pick them by they don't want to treat people the same or equally. You know what I mean? They don't want to treat, give him the equal opportunity death or, you know, have him just, you know, they, they want to go, they want everyone, they need victims. They want you to be their victim. Do you know what I mean? So I thought this was just so playing it straight, you know, and really, really great. Loved it. 
So if they remade it, he would be the final girl. He well, of course he would be. <laughs> of course he would be. Uh, what um, What do you think about a chick asking a guy in a wheelchair if his dick still works? What's real? Mm. Well, I don't know if it's real, but it it's certainly she's just saying the silent part out loud. <laughs> no, but no, but she didn't say she wasn't like she was grossed out. She asked like. She was flirting and asking. Yeah, I know, he, I know. And then he was, you know, he hit it back over the net and was like, you know, I do all right or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I think she was, it was, I think it was tasteful. That conversation was quite tasteful. It was, you know, she sort of skirted around, you know, I mean, she was, she wanted to be with him no matter what. Yeah. And I think it was, the inference was, you know, well, okay, how are we, we going to sort of uh, get this squared away? You know, and uh, she was just looking for a little bit, bit more information as to how she was going to have her way with that hunky man. I think it might have been in, you know, on in the conscience consciousness because of Hal Ashby's coming home with uh, Jane Fonda and John Voight. He was, you know, famous. There's a famous uh, love scene, you know, and he's he's a veteran in a wheelchair and stuff. And I think that it that it sort of, you know, really captured everyone. And not too not too long before, so um, around about the same time. Uh, don't quote me, but uh, yeah, great stuff. So our mate Ebert is back on um, on the scene. Mm-hmm. He's, I'll just read you some of his review here. Stay with me. He says, did, "I saw." Did he give away the ending? Uh, oh, he's given away a bunch. He says, "I saw Friday the Thirteenth Part Two at the Virginia Theater, a former vaudeville house in my hometown of wherever." The late show was half filled with high school and college students. And as the lights went down, I experienced a brief wave of nostalgia in this very theater on countless Friday nights. I'd gone with a date to the movies. My nostalgia lasted for for the first two minutes of the movie. The pre-title sequence showed one of the heroines of the original Friday the 13th alone at home. She has nightmares, wakes up, undresses, is stalked by the camera, hears a noise in the kitchen. She tiptoes into the kitchen, through the open window, a cat springs into the room. The audience screamed loudly and happily. It's fun to be scared. Then an unidentified man sunk an ice pick into the girl's brain, and for me, the fun stopped. Uh, the audience, however, carried on. It is a tradition to be loud during these movies, I guess. After a batch of young counsellors turns up for training at the summer camp, a girl goes out walking alone at night. Everybody in the audience imitated hoot, howls and hyenas. Another girl went to her room and started to undress. Five guys sitting together started to chant, we want boobs. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. uh, We're a good time, eh? So... The plot in the original movie, blah, blah, blah. Okay, all right. So just skip down a bit. He says, uh, the movie's a cross between the mad slasher and dead teenager genres, about two dozen movies a year feature, a mad killer going berserk. And they're all about as bad as this one. Some have a little more plot, some a little less. It doesn't matter. Sinking into my into my seat in this movie theater uh, from my childhood, I remembered the movie fantasies when I was a kid. They involved teenagers who fell in love made out with each other, customized their cars, listened to rock and roll, and were rebels without causes. Neither the kids in those movies nor the kids watching them would have understood a world, a worldview in which the primary function of teenagers is to be hacked to death. This review will suffice for the 13th, Friday the 13th film of your choice. Would It would be so much fun to be in that theater. It's so funny perspective, isn't it? Like, um, uh, I do, like, particularly maybe after COVID-19 and you know, the, the decline of movies in general. And, you know, you can only, literally only see um, Marvel movies and Dwayne the Rock Johnson movies now. There's no other movies, you know. Yeah. Uh, so the idea of going 
what Ebert's missing is he doesn't know how good he's got it, like, you know, and how bad it was going to get. I do. I think what we've lost is the collective experience, you know, mm. all the, we've got this access to all of this content now, but what, what movies need and what this movie was made that was made for is a collective experience. It wasn't made to be watched on video. It was made mm. to be watched with other people, you know, and that's why it's hard. That's why these films were really, are really weird to watch, but particularly the first few pre videotape films is because they're not made to be watched the way we're watching them. They're made yeah. to be, you know, we go out on a Friday night and, you know, we, we, we either laugh, you know, or we, or we nervously laugh or we, we, you know, jump in our seats or whatever. And I get why Ebert isn't a fan, you know, because it's a shock, you know, he was seeing the debasing of an art form, you know, uh, the seventies, you know, it was a rough time, you know, but some brilliant, obviously the, the brilliant movies, but, but then again, he should wake up to himself because why is it okay? Why would it have been okay to see bodies from soldiers wrapped in flags coming from Vietnam, home from Vietnam? And what does he expect everyone to do? Just watch Fred Astaire and Shirley Temple. Mm. You know, the world's moved on, you know, they, they, you, you've got to move with the times. And these films uh, were serving a function, you know, of, of uh, you know, of, of giving young people an experience that, 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 that they really identified with, something about it, something about the morals that, you know, um, or, and the blood and gore, I think it's probably replicating how they feel. You know what I mean? The characters are 2D. You know, Jason and his mother are more fleshed out than than the counsellors. Um, there's more time and care spent on Tom and Tom Savini's FX than anything else. But as I say, they've they've it's kind of like a a Punch and Judy show. You know, sex and violence that that are meant to be seen with an audience. And you know, there's there's room in the film like left for our laughter and screaming and jumping and chatting. Even you know, it's not meant you're not meant to sit there and watch every second of it. Like you know, I don't, I don't think anyway. So out of its context, it's very strange. If I can jump in on that one, everything that you have just said is true, especially sort of like the eighties. Uh, I can't you know speak for late seventies because I couldn't go to the cinema on my own but certainly um early 80s um you know like even um going to see a horror film was very much a a theatrical experience because I the one that sticks in my mind is going to see Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors and it was it was very much you know because it was all it was a a cast of young people the Cinema was full of young people my age. We we'd snuck in because we were a bit younger, and um, you know it was really it was very interactive. You had people screaming, yelling, people going, "Come on, Freddie!" Stuff you know that that kind of stuff. It was really, um, as you just said, it was meant to be seen in a group of people um and and it was very yeah it was it was quite exciting and and the reaction of the crowds and stuff like that was very much i guess what you're talking about that's cinema you know and and that's we've we're for the moment we quite haven't we don't have a uh, a solve for this you know these netflix series as good as they can be and you know are not filling the void we need a big film to go and sit down and and to you know to experience together, so I don't know how we get back to that um, because the, yeah the analogs just aren't working. I mean I you know that's why I want to go see this new new Bond or whatever. I don't care what it's like to be honest. I just want to see a big movie 
you know, with a with a bunch of other people, and you know, and uh, and experience it. And I think that's what these films are perfectly made for. And EBIT is, you know, just sitting there going, "Oh, geez, you know, those were the days." And I really he should have just like maybe centered himself and looked around and said, "You know what? Like, I don't understand this generation, but but they're to they're they're experiencing something, experiencing something together." And they're working through something. And I think when they leave this cinema, despite me not liking this movie, I think they're going to be, you know, if, if it is true, as, as has been said, that the good dream of what the bad do, you know, then these people will leave this cinema, you know, uh, flushed with blood, revved up, you know, ready to, to, to live their life, you know, and have gone through some kind of, ex, ex, you know, positive experience. But I think that he's, you know, he's let the bad guys win. A little bit here, maybe. But... Shall we address the uh, Me Too crimes? Yes. Okay. So it's a bit shorter here because we've covered some of them. So, yeah, obviously, a lot, lot of getting changed. Ginny's got some getting changed action. I, th- I thought that Ginny was um, such a, f- like, probably, I love the, these, the, these oh, what, what do you say? Just these girl next door types, mm. you know? Like, it would be so, de- now this is an old reference, I, and I'm acknowledging that, but it's just because she's, I think, stands out in my mind as being representative of this. It would be different if it was like Megan Fox back in the day, you know? Mm. Like Megan Fox is who they would get now. And and, and you just, or, or whoever the new one is, you know, it doesn't even matter. Even if it was Zendaya or whatever, it would still be someone who you just go, oh, you're not, you're just, you're not the girl next door, you know? So anyway. Ginny getting changed, not on. So I think the biggest crime in this movie is um, two things. Well, the first thing is Paul, the head of the counselor. He the, the, he gives some practical advice. Paul's advice to the to the female counselors. He says, if you're a woman, <gasps> if oh, you're yes. a woman, don't use perfume because of the bears. Mm. And then he says, keep clean during your menstrual cycle. Mm. Keep clean. Mm. And the girls kind of look at each other and nod knowingly. They know. They know. Yeah. They know. They, they don't. They don't want to. They don't want to not keep clean. Because a bear will get them. <laughs> I I felt that whole scene with with Paul sort of outlining the rules. He did come across as a bit of a mansplainer, to be honest. Mm. He did say to Ginny at one point, "Use that psychology you've been studying," which felt a little bit uh, condescending, mansplainy. Yeah. Well, he was also you know, a sexual aggressor, you know, so that's a problem. But um, so Sheila, what do you think of that advice? Don't use perfume if you're a woman <laughs> during your menstrual cycle. Is this good advice on a camp or? It was just gross. It was just gross, you mm. know. But then, but then that um, the girl, I forget her name, the one that's going to, going to get it on with Mr. Wheelchair. Um, she, she puts perfume all over herself and then she sprays some down there at a bush. So Yeah. Well, she didn't follow the rules. She's gonna so. get eaten. Are you saying she deserves what what she gets? Because I, I feel like that was very uh there was a lot of, you know, if you do this, you deserve subconsciously what you're about to get. Mm. Throughout the whole throughout both films, quite frankly, if you if you have sex, you're gonna get it. If you, well, we've we've talked about know. this before, and what I think it is, it's it's a reaction to the Reagan era conservatism around yeah. sex and nudity and stuff. So I think it's tongue in cheek, <laughs> a reaction to that. Really, I mean, the, the, the filmmakers that do this, they don't believe that, you know, if you have sex, you should be be killed. You know, I, I think that is just a tongue in cheek middle finger to to Reagan and his wife. You know, <laughs> mm. well. 
Uh, yeah. So I think, um, you know, there's also, it, it's so funny that that expression, if you're a woman, it takes on a new meaning now. Today. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like imagine, imagine if I said, if you're a woman, blah, blah, blah. Now I'd be, I'd be canceled for an entirely different reason. You know, <laughs> people would be like, do you mean <laughs> all women? And I'd be like, sure. Just if you're all women, just keep clean during your menstrual cycle. <laughs> they, they go well. And then they go, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you said all women. I go, yeah, no, but I was a pig. <laughs> you know, you should cancel me anyway. <laughs> so anyway, so the biggest crime as we've outlined. Well, but secondly, these camp leaders all seem to be nailing their subordinates. Mm, like yep. That, you know, I mean, life is life. And a lot of us meet people at work, you know, meet partners at work and whatever. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's endemic here. Like there's always a, just some... Older white guy leader who's just casually nailing like the main subordinate and she's not that into it, you know, like it's not a hot, it's not a good relationship. It's always like he's used his, he's like, come and help me at my, at my camp or whatever. And then he's like, you know, I don't know, you can fill in the rest. So the worst, the worst we've talked about, this is Scott. Scott is a sex pest, although an attractive one, uh, a sexual crime. So, uh, uh terry do you want to dance he says and she says no you know um uh and uh and then he gaslights her by you know using the dog and stuff like that which is a good trick actually you know like you just got to just be weird just be weird and then they'll they'll fall for it um shoots her butt with a slingshot uh mm. which i think i might put on insta later because it yeah, was such a spectacular it. moment <laughs> <laughs> and then he winks at her the yeah. nod and the yeah. and she but she seems to not be that pissed off She's into no. it. She's kind yes. of into it, yeah. She is. She was into it, Your Honor, is what you should say. Um, and then finally, the skinny dipping. So she's skinny dipping. As you say, um, member of the Bush family turns up uh, and she, Scott steals her clothes and then, like, you know, ch- chases him, I guess, and he's running away with them. And she's all like, oh, you silly Scott, you know. So um, you still get the feeling that it was, it was inevitable that they were going to like end up together. Mm. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, some some men do this. They just they just wear chicks down, and then the the chick gives up and says, "Okay, let's get married." Yeah, mm. I had an ex fiance that that happened with. Really? Yeah. You have missed the the chick um, changing her underpants into her and getting into her special sex underpants. Yeah, that mm. seemed real though. Oh. Uh, like, well, it's not. But the I mean, underpants weren't that impressive. <laughs> Glenn's never had the uh, the the privilege. He gets granny underpants. That's what he gets. Um, <laughs> he loves but, it. Um, yeah, he's, he's gotten used to it. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, no, so well, you think um, that's but, real? But the idea, well, no, I think what's real is that women aren't wearing sexy underwear, generally speaking. Um uh just of of a tuesday um, and when they know they're they're going to get some good action they get into their the nice their nice um but on the face of it i can see the idea of you know sexy underwear at all like you know being used uh to to entice a man for a man's pleasure i can see why that would be seen as um a, a distinct negative you know yes. what i mean because yes. it's because it's acknowledging that um, the patriarchy sucks. The patriarchy sucks, I guess. Uh, but it's also <laughs> like you know, like it's uh, yeah, any anything to do with men uh, having any sort of sexual response 
uh, natural, <laughs> unnatural is disgusting, is inherently disgusting. And if it happens, I mean, you, you know, shame on you is what I'm saying, Ricky. Shame on you. Oh. Did you did you look at that hard body earlier in the movie and, you know, let nature take its course? I bet you did. Well, I did. Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. I did pitch a tent in my pants. Well, I didn't ask. But uh, <laughs> so the Me Too scale, that's Gross. the Me Too scale. Uh, these are the charges. Is this worse or? I think it's worse. It is worse. Yeah. Okay. So this one gets uh, maybe an eight. I think it gets an eight. Mm. I think yeah. it gets an eight. Uh, an eight. Yes, definitely. And, um, and you know, as can happen with the Me Too scale, I enjoyed this film more. So mm. awkward stuff. Awkward stuff. Final thought? For you? Yeah, go on. Uh, extreme cock blocking has never been so entertaining. Halloween meets meatballs. Mm, <laughs> That's good. I like it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, no, I can't I can't top that today. Uh well, we we'll roll on next week. We'll do we'll do three and four. And I look I guarantee what? you. Yeah. But this was the deal. Yep. And and are we going to force Sheila now to do all the Friday the thirteenth? <laughs> I feel like we should. Like you, you sort I of. I think that should be a punishment. It. You deserve it. Mm. You know, like you, you just came on st- out of the gates, just oh. talking about how much they suck. So you deserve it. Uh, they do get better, actually. I, I, I stand by it. My favourite ones are number four is fantastic. Number three was the first one I saw. Uh, number six is probably one of the best ones. Number seven is glorious, uh, and eight, uh, Jason Takes Manhattan is good too. When does he go to space? I've seen parts of that one, and I'm a sci-fi nut, and I kind of like that one. Jason X. When when does he go to space? And when does he when does he go to when does he go to hell? And when does he team up with Freddy? Okay, that's a lot. Uh, But nine (laughs) nine is um, you know uh, Jason goes to hell. I'm pretty sure ten is Jason X, and then we then we get into. Freddy vs Jason. As as someone who has never seen these films, I I'm shocked to know there's eleven of them. No, there's a remake too, so there's twelve. Oh, <laughs> oh fucking hell! My <laughs> God. <laughs> okay, well I think we should probably wrap it up. Uh, Sheila, thanks for filling in. Ah, oh, thanks guys. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you on board. Thank you very much. So we said, till next time, <laughs> long live the new flesh. Long live the new flesh. God help us all. I just can't stand it. They're blocking those cocks. You're frigid.